0: How many have come this morning and you're ready for God's word? I'll ask that question once I get done preaching, because what I'm going to share today is a little tough to share, but if you brought your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. We're going to talk about the decision to create distance. Sometimes, as we're going to learn today, we need to distance ourselves from others. And so we're going to talk about that today in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. uh, The NIV has this little title above the chapter, Expel the Immoral Brother. And so verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even... Uh, "'that does not occur even among the pagans. "'A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. "'Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief "'and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? "'Even though I am not physically present, "'I am with you in spirit, "'and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, "'just as if I were present.'" When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you, I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel That wicked man from among you. Now, that is a mouthful, all right? There is a lot here, and as I was studying this past week, it hit me, you know. We're going to talk about the topic of sexual immorality today, but Paul also deals with it in chapter 6, chapter 10, talks about marriage in chapter 7. And so I'm reminding myself that I don't have to cover everything there is to be covered, I guess, in in this chapter because more is coming as well. But, but I do know that whenever I preach on a book of the Bible, at some point I come to a section such as today's uh, section and I will ask myself, "Why in the world are you preaching from this book of the Bible? you know and to make it clear, the reason that I preach any series is because, in response to prayer and study, I believe that 's the series the Holy Spirit is leading me to preach, but that doesn 't change the fact that sometimes what I preach on is difficult to preach, let me put it that way. It's a challenging text, be sure, and today's te- text is right there, not only because it addresses a situation that isn't really pleasant to preach on, but it also presents the challenge of, well, how do we apply this to our context? How do we apply this to our church, our ministry, our lives, when, to my knowledge, uh, something like this is not happening at this current time? And so does this really say anything to us at all? We know that Paul was saying to the church in Corinth, you know, he was dealing with fornication, with sexual immorality. He was writing about a report of of, of a situation in the church in Corinth where the church, the leaders of the church, refused to deal with the offender. Now, he declares that the church, as a holy people, must not permit, must not tolerate immorality among its members. And I thought about this this past week, I'm thinking, if there were more pastors in America alone that would preach the word of God and not worry about expediency or who I'm going to step on, you know, what toes I'm going to step on or whatever, I think the church would be further off. All right, just an observation. I will say that the permissiveness of the Corinthian church speaks very loudly to our situation in America today. Would you agree? I mean, many churches today are tolerant of and silent about immorality among their members, including adultery and all forms of sexual immorality and perversion. Premarital sex is not only tolerated in America... It is now justified under the pretense, well, we love each other. We are committed to each other. I believe it's all a byproduct of the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. Even today, many say and believe and churches teach that homosexuality as well is okay. And we we now have homosexuals and lesbians pastoring churches uh, throughout this world. Uh, I I call them false teachers, all right? They are simply wolves in sheep's clothing. And so even, even though our text this morning might not speak to us directly in our current context or situation, we still have to ask ourselves, what is God saying to me through this passage. Good news for the not so good in our series. This is the ninth message. But as we talk about this, uh, as we examine really this rather awkward, out-of-control situation in Corinth, uh, really is there anything we can learn about what that situation might be and how we can make the application for our lives today? So we'll get there. The good news is, yes, there are lessons to be learned and there are principles to be applied, in and from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we look at our our text this morning. But Paul really, he wastes no time getting to the point. In chapter 1 he refers to the reports that he had heard from Chloe's household about the various divisions in the church and what they were experienced. But now Paul moves on to the next item on his, what I call his hit list. All right, And he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality Fornication, the King James says, among you, and a kind that even pagans do not tolerate, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And so without preamble, Paul began the discussion of the next problem in the Corinthian church, and that was really indifference toward immorality. Uh, Fornication, the word fornication normally denotes participation with a harlot, but here Paul used it in in the sense of a general sexual misconduct, thus other translations simply call it, instead of fornication, sexual immorality. Now, while incest was not entirely unknown among the Gentiles, Paul indicated that it was not common and definitely not condoned. Since it was so shameful, it was not even named or mentioned, as he says, among them. Uh, Both Greek and Roman law stamped it with infamy, and Jewish law provided harsh penalties for this act. And the sin, to be specific, was between a man and his father's wife." It has been suggested by many commentators that this refers to his stepmother, that the offender had seduced his stepmother, and that she was divorced or the father had died, leaving her a widow. That's possible, but we're not that, given those specifics. And so they are not stated here. And so they're, they're, I'm, I'm just simply sharing some details that, that really aren't there. In that sense, we only know that this disgraceful union had been established and as should have Paul's words tells us it was, a, it was a continued relationship, an ongoing thing that was going on, and its existence really, really reflected a weak church that needed to repent and be restored. And so there's a lot of unanswered questions as I've read that. You know, was the father still living? We don't know. Were they still married? Don't know. What were the ages of those involved, as if it matters? Don't know. Were they all living in the same household? Was everyone on board with this arrangement? So we have a lot of unanswered questions, and we don't know all those details. But what we do know is enough to know that this was wrong by every imaginable standard, even in the Anything goes culture of first century Corinth. This situation was considered beyond the realm of propriety. And yet, and yet the church was okay with it. And Paul says, and you are proud, verse two, shouldn't you have rather gone out in the morning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. Now, when I read that, my mind goes to, well, what about the woman? Paul's pointing out the man should put out, well, it takes two, right? At least in my science, it still takes two, a male and a female, and so what about the woman? She's never mentioned other than, you know, his, his father's wife. The assumption is that this man was more than just an occasional visitor or a casual attender and their living arrangement was less than the street. I mean, the implication is people knew this guy. and and, and everyone knew what was going on. Maybe he was a leader in the church. Maybe he was wealthy and an influential member, and his money did some talking for him. Thus, he wasn't confronted in his sin. But Paul was clearly not okay with the church's response to the situation. The reaction of the church had been sadly amiss. Now, keep this in mind. The Corinthians' pride had reached such a point that they considered themselves above the standard of God. Perhaps they considered themselves, in today's terminology, more broad-minded than some. They were not sorrowful over their indifference and reproach. They were blinded to what should have been the response. Church, anytime you or I think we know more than God, and, and we dictate for ourselves our own standards versus God's standards, It is an indicator that our hearts are full of pride. A side note, just read Leviticus chapter 18 on your own this week where it talks about unlawful sexual relations in specific verse 8. Of chapter 18, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife that would dishonor your father. And on throughout Leviticus 18, the writer is saying, do not defile yourself in any of these ways. Keep my decrees, God says. Keep my laws. Don't do any of these detestable things. Even God says such persons must be cut off from their people. And over and over, you'll see in Leviticus chapter 18 a phrase that is mentioned in in many of the verses, and the phrase is, have sexual relations with, and it's from a Hebrew phrase that literally means, uncover the nakedness of. Uncover the nakedness of. It involves the entire realm, and please hear what I'm about to say, it involves the entire realm of impure sexual activity and play, including acts that even fall short of sexual intercourse. Thus, any kind of sexual activity involving the uncovering of the nakedness of another person who is not a lawful wife or husband oversteps God's boundaries of purity and is in serious sin against God and His law. I know that young people today will say, well, as long as we don't go all the way. Well, according to God's word and God's standard, Leviticus 18, even the uncovering the nakedness of can lead then to living in sin. Now, here's the biblical bottom line. All right, I want to be very plain here. I'm not going to mince words. Sexual intimacy is reserved for the marriage relationship as between a man and a woman, period. Let me say it again. Sexual intimacy is reserved for the marriage relationship between a man and a woman, period. Adultery, sexual immorality, homosexuality, sensuality, impurity, and degrading passions are considered sins in the sight of God. And the Bible repeatedly tells us that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not Brian, God. All right? Now, if you have a fire Bible, full life study Bible, life in the spirit Bible, all one, the same, just different titles for that. There is an article in the fire Bible, standards of sexual morality, that would be worth your reading. One last comment before I move on. I cannot and will not deviate from God's word when it comes to this topic. It can be legal and everyone else may agree with the sexual revolution that has taken place but I for one cannot and will not go along with it because this is and it was to Paul as well, a life and death matter. It's an eternal matter. And I will not apologize for preaching and teaching God's word on this topic. And I also realize that before I retire, I could end up in jail for believing and teaching and preaching for what I do because of the way the world's going today, all right? As Pastor Jim reminded me earlier of a a quote, not original with me, but a quote I like to use is, everyone wants to be a Christian until it gets biblical. (laughs) So moving on, and I'll address more of this as we go through this, Paul indicated that they should expel the sinner. In other words, the honor of God's at stake, the honor, the holiness of the Corinthian church was at stake. And the attitude of the Corinthian believers concerning this gross sin shows that they still had a long ways to go to rise above the wicked environment in which they lived. You see, Corinth had become so notorious for its wickedness that its very name, Corinth, had become a symbol for the worst kind of immorality. And like, in other words, if you're, if you're a person engaged in sin, well, you Corinthian... That was kind of the thing back then. It's kind of like today. When I say Las Vegas, you think, well, what happens there stays there. Not necessarily. But that's kind of the same. Corinth Corinth was known for their immorality. Now, when it comes to an anything-goes culture, we in America give Corinth a run for their money. Every time it looks like we have reached the bottom of the cesspool we somehow managed to dig a little deeper and then today today we are debating the propriety of behaviors that are unimaginable 50 years ago that wouldn't have even been a blip on the radar to me it's a, it's hard to imagine a church such as corinth endorsing a lifestyle That is considered too far out there for our culture, because I'm not sure that our secular culture considers anything too far out there. Paul was adamant, though, in his take on the matter. Summarizing it, this isn't right, it cannot be ignored, and it must be dealt with swiftly and surely. And Paul didn't mince his words. For my part, verse 3, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. In other words, Paul is saying, Corinth, what you are allowing is sin. What you are allowing is wrong and you need to repent. This is what Paul was telling them to do. Verse 4, so when you are assembled, meaning when the whole church is gathered together, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Remember, where two or three are gathered, he is there in the midst. And Then Paul says this, verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. I I read that and I'm thinking, you know, Paul, why don't you tell us what's really on your mind? You know, I mean, he's just as direct as you can be. And so Paul here is talking really about the process of church discipline and restoration that Jesus introduced to us in Matthew 18 where Jesus said in 15 through 17, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over, but if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So basically, in summary of Matthew 18, you meet with them one-on-one, you take two or three others with you, then you meet with a larger group of leaders and believers, then you treat them as you would an outsider. When I first got to Arizona in 2000, was it year 2000, Jill? And it was shortly thereafter that pastor, Jeff Peterson, at that time pastoring... Red Mountain Christian Center, took me out for lunch, kind of get to know the presbyter. He was the presbyter of our section. And Jeff made a a statement, a comment to me. We're talking about something or another. But he made a statement. He says, Brian, he says, church discipline as defined in Matthew chapter 18 pretty much doesn't exist anymore. And then he says, because when you try to bring correction to people's lives, they end up leaving. And I thought, no truer words have ever been spoken. You know, I've seen, that, I've seen that played out. See, a brief teaching, summary of, of the teaching of Christ in Matthew 18 is that when someone you know personally knows or are caught up in a sin, perhaps they're destroying their lives or the lives of those around them, you meet with them privately, you go one-on-one. If they don't listen, you take somebody with you, somebody, you know, spiritually mature, other believers, those who have credibility that can address the issue from a biblical standpoint, and if they still don't, you know, listen to you, repent or whatever, then you take it before the whole assembly, larger assembly of leaders, and then you try to ultimately help them find restoration. That's the goal. If they still refuse to listen, then Jesus says you treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. And how are we supposed to treat pagans and tax collectors? We love them, we pray for them, we don't give up on them, but we don't give them voice or influence in our lives. In other words, we don't shun them or bar them from the premises, we just don't allow them to lead, we don't allow them to serve, and even we don't allow their offerings, if they will, uh, to dictate how the church is run. Now, as a side note, I said we, 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 but really, I, I've, I've very seldom have gotten beyond step two in this process. Is there a summary, Lauren, on the Matthew 18? There it is. There, in the process, I've got, i very barely, barely have gotten beyond uh, point number two. Uh, years ago, uh, dealing with this topic, when I was pastoring in Wine, Iowa, it was 1994 to 1999. I learned of a board member through prayer uh, who was sleeping with, with someone who was, he was not married to. And after praying about this, I sensed Holy Spirit tell me to go to her house on a Saturday morning. You will find his car there. And I did. Jill was with me. A little town of like five 6,000 people. And uh, I knocked on the door, and she opened it up. He's there back in the background. And I started talking to him and telling him what he is doing is not right because you're, you're a leader in the church supposedly and so I asked him to either repent of his ways and and to stop doing what he's been doing or to resign and give me the key which he did never saw him again and so it was one of the hardest things I've had to do and, and, and but also needed to do and, and so I've, I've been familiar over the, over the years I've been familiar with churches who love the process who, who will you know confront others, engage others the drop of a hat? They love calling people out i 'll tell you right now i 'm not like that um, i, I, I don 't like doing that, but if necessary, when and when it 's necessary, I will do that all right, uh, but we enter this process really, if ever necessary, carefully, prayerfully, reluctantly, with the sole objective of really bringing repentance and restoration into people's lives. Well, Paul uses some very symbolic language here in this passage. He talks about yeast and leaven that we're going to talk about in a bit. He talks about handing this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Once again, that's a metaphor. He is not talking about an actual ritual where we invite the devil to come in and take over from here. You know, we're not talking about that. He's talking about the same time about the time when we have to step back at at times. We have to separate ourselves from someone. We have to stop, listen to me, we have to stop intervening and stop enabling and let them experience the natural and inevitable consequences of their sinful behavior. There is a sense in which, and I want you to follow what I'm saying here, there is a sense in which that God doesn't immediately punish sin because he doesn't need to. In other words, sin brings about its own punishment. The inevitable and unavoidable outcome of sin is never pleasant, but always bad. It's never good. I mean, I have never, ever heard someone say, you know, the pieces of my life all fell into place as soon as I started sinning. They don't say that. Usually, when people are left to their sin... It will take them farther than they want to go. It'll cost them more than they want to pay and it'll keep them longer than they want to stay. You've heard the old adage. But no one has ever said, well, I started doing this wrong thing and man, my life's been great since. No one has said that. Sometimes we find ourselves at a point where we have to create distance between ourselves and that person who insists on wreaking havoc in their lives and in the lives of those around them. We have to say, you know, since you're not willing to make an effort, since you're not willing to listen to anyone else, I have no choice but to let you go your own way, come what may. Now that, my friend, is a hard decision. It's a tough decision. It's called tough love. And when we make that decision, it feels like the end of the line, but it isn't necessarily, because there is hope. Fortunately, as I said, right now in our church that, I, that I'm aware of, we don't have to take these drastic steps, but if needed, we will. Years ago, also here at BCF, and I could write you a book on some of these stories, we had some missing items I was looking for one day. It was a used soundboard for, like, for audio, for a sanctuary, the old one from here, uh, some huge speakers and a TV. And again, in prayer, Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, it was this person go to their apartment. And so Joe was with me, and I do not give a name, but we went to the apartment. I confirmed this person. Did you steal this stuff? The Lord showed me in prayer that you did. And he confessed, yes, I did. I want that stuff back. Well, I can't do that because I already sold the soundboard. I already sold the speakers. Do you still have a TV? Yes, I got a TV. I want that back, and that TV is still someplace on premise. We got the TV back. And then I said, I want restitution for what you stole or I will get the, 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 the police involved and you'll be answering to them because you are a thief. And so basically, um, the next day I got a call from his dad and his dad was very apologetic for his son's behavior and said the check is literally in the mail for whatever it is. It was very generous, I, I, I knew it was generous. But here's the, what we don't know. The person that stole the equipment was our former worship leader and his dad was an Assembly of God pastor in California, which I didn't realize that apart. And, and here's the thing. I kept him out of jail that time, but I should have let him go to jail because about two years later, we saw on the news he was picked up in Oklahoma because uh, his mom and him ran a, ran a charter school and he was peeking in on the teenage girls in their situation, bathroom, whatever, and he was arrested. And last I heard, he was doing prison time, all right? Um, I probably delayed that and probably should have pressed charges to begin with. But anyway, I share all that to say I'm not afraid of confronting people. I don't like doing it. Most of us don't, but I will do it if it's needful and necessary. Now, as individuals, there may be times When we do have to take such steps with family members or friends or co-workers and so on. Situations where we have to create distance between ourselves and them until they they get things lined up in their lives. And so... That is all introductory. In The next few minutes before we close, I want to give you three takeaways from our text to keep in mind that even though we might might not find ourselves in their situation today, we can still learn and have some takeaways from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The first one is this. Even in the midst of a hopeless situation, there's always hope. There's still hope. What did Paul say? Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, in the natural, I'd be inclined to say, hand that person over to Satan so he can burn in hell for all eternity. Hand this person over to Satan because God's finished with him and wants nothing for them to do with him. But instead, Paul seems to be saying, you know something? Even though this is wrong, even though this must be dealt with, there's still hope for the man, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Once again, our end goal, our end game needs to be restoration, needs to be healing. Paul's saying, hey, I know what's going on, and we're going to address that. And yes, you can turn him over to the flesh and this and that and to Satan. And hopefully he'll, he'll get a wake-up call in that. But hopefully his, his spirit will be saved, restored into a right relationship with God. Now some commentators suggest that Paul had in mind the idea of letting the flesh go as far as it could go in Satan's realm. And then the sinner would remember God's goodness and return. Always keep in mind, that the intent of the sentence is to bring the offender back to Christ. On that day of the Lord, when every man's position shall be finalized, that ultimately that person would stand with the company of the redeemed. Also, one more note to be added. In this account, Satan was pictured as subject to God, and it's clear that God will gain final glory in every situation. Church, always keep in mind that Satan's power is limited and must serve the purpose of God, which is always redemptive. And so Paul was faithful to keep his priorities straight in this matter, in loving the sinful and yet preserving the church. Over the years, I've known parents who have had to create separation with their grown children. I've known children who have had to do the same thing with their adult parents. I recently read of a young man who had bailed out his father, literally posting bail numerous times, more times than he could count. He finally reached a point where he had to come and say, Dad, I cannot be your enabler anymore. I'm saying goodbye once for all. Man, when you do that, it, it hurts. It, it, it's hard to do. It's, it's so final, uh, and sometimes it is but yet sometimes it's not to quote Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. You know, there's still hope. There's still hope even for the worst of, of situations, even for the vilest of sinners and offenders. And so parents and grandparents and children, there is still hope for your family. Amen. Here's a second takeaway. Number two, we need to be mindful of sin's corrupting influence. Verse 6, Paul says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little, leaven, a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Now, this was a common expression, reference in Jewish literature. Leaven symbolizes an evil influence. It refers to the substance, typically yeast, that's used to produce fermentation in dough and would then cause the bread to rise in preparation for baking. In other words, to bake bread, for those of you that bake bread, it only takes a very small amount of yeast, leaven, to make the whole lump of dough rise. My wife occasionally makes homemade caramel rolls. If you've had them, you know they're good. You can see on the PowerPoint photo a picture of our wood burning stove. We'll get the fire going, let it stoke down just so it's coals, and put that elevated above on the wood burning stove to raise the, the, the dough. But she told me that she uses, in a whole batch of dough, only two and a fourth teaspoons of yeast. That's a very little bit of yeast compared to the amount of flour that you're using. I often help her with the process here by when she cuts the rolls, I will paste. Place them then in the pan accordingly and always making sure the center rolls are the best rolls because I go for those first. Anyway, leaven, yeast, it only takes a small amount of yeast to make the whole dump, the whole lump of dough rise. We see this principle taught throughout Scripture. Even the smallest amount of sin can wreak havoc in people's lives. And when it goes unchecked and it's given the chance to work its way through the whole lump, all of a sudden it affects everything. Friends, we've seen this at work in our culture. An idea or a behavior becomes tolerable. And then it becomes permissible. And then it becomes acceptable. Then it becomes the new standard. And then it becomes cause for celebration, a.k.a. June Pride Month White House lit rainbow colors. All right, it's celebrated. What was once called sin is now celebrated. As Johnny Erickson Todd has said, gradually the unthinkable becomes tolerable, then acceptable, then legal, then praised. I don't care if it's praised. I don't care if it's legal. I don't care if everybody else accepts it as being okay. I will still stand on the word of God. And God's word has not changed period. Would to God more of us preachers had the backbone to say, thus saith the Lord. I think we're in the shape that we're in in a country because of weak pulpits, personally. Observation. Now, let me just change gears a little bit. For those of you that know me, and if you ever called my cell phone, my cell phone's ringtone is the Andy Griffith Show, it's my favorite TV show because it brings me back to an era where things were simple and innocent for the most part. And there was a lesson being taught in every episode for Andy, Griffin said, I don't wanna do this TV show, I wanna teach a moral lesson. In this, in this episode, Barney's motorcycle, his sidecar, he bought this as uh, at a, at a uh, um, what do you call it? A surplus store, army surplus store. And he was going to use his motorcycle to enforce traffic laws. And so and so. there's an episode where Barney is wanting to strictly enforce the 35 mile an hour speed limit. And Andy says something along the lines of, well, we give the truckers up to 40 miles per hour because there's a steep hill up the road. And Barney says, in Barney-like fashion, you give them 40 today, and they'll do 45 tomorrow. You give them 45 tomorrow, and they'll do 50 the next day, and on and on. It's the Checkpoint Chicky episode. I love it. It's one of my favorites. In that episode, Barney says, if you ride with your mouth open in the wind and put your tongue against the roof of your mouth, it's impossible to pronounce a word that begins with the letter S. Try it. Try it. You can't do it. And Andy says to Barney, you didn't let anyone else see you riding with your mouth open, did you? Now, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm in agreement with officers Officer Fife's defense because he has a point. Especially when it comes to society. And this is honestly the problem with moral compromise. It doesn't just move the boundary, it removes the boundary. As Barney said in another episode about letting people jaywalk, soon Mayberry will become a regular sin town. You can see Barney saying that. Yeast, sin, leaven, It doesn't just have an impact on others, it has an impact on you, and it has an impact on those around you. It impacts all of us. See, when we decide that certain sins are acceptable, or even worse, admirable, we are setting ourselves up to do the very same thing. And it shows us that our hearts are full of pride. This is why King Solomon said, in Proverbs 22, 24, and 25. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with anyone with one easily angered, or you may learn their ways and yourself be ensnared. Friends, I've known people over the years, and so have you, who have just flown off, you know, they're prone to fly off the handle at, at, at one thing or another. I, years ago, when I used to go golfing, I golfed with a younger guy than me back then, and, 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 and he when he didn't hit a good shot, he would throw his clubs. I only golfed with him that one time. I, I'm like, it's just a game, people. It's just a game, you know? It's, it's okay. Um, and, and so sometimes you can't avoid being in their company, but here's what you can do. You can decide that you will not let this person's bad behavior, their bad behavioral influence, influence your own life. And if that means I have to avoid you, that means I'm going to avoid you. I'm going to create distance between myself and you. So here's what I'm saying. Of course, we, we take our own sin seriously. We hold ourselves to the highest of standards, but we also need to take seriously the leaven-like effect of others' behavior, and we must be careful not to let their bad behavior influence our own. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, same letter. Paul says, bad company, verse 34, bad company corrupts good character. Bad company corrupts good character. Always beware of of sin's influence. Be mindful of the corrupting nature, the influence of sin. Here's the third takeaway. Number three, it's not our job to judge the world. But it is our responsibility to hold one another accountable. The church, unfortunately, has a reputation for judging those beyond our walls, telling everyone else that they're going to hell. Listen to what Paul wrote in verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? In other words, Paul says, it's not my job. Now, we're talking about Paul here. We're talking about St. Paul. We're talking about the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote half the books of the New Testament. Friends, if if it's not Paul's job to judge those outside the church, then it's certainly not my job and it's not your job. You see, the church has made the mistake far too long of spending time and effort in passing judgment on the world and turning a blind eye to the sin within our own circles. As Peter says, that's where judgment must begin within the household of God. What does that mean? We hold one another accountable. When we see someone close to us engaging in behavior that hurts themselves, that hurts those around them with great care, with compassion. We lovingly intervene. We offer to help them. We want to find repentance and restoration. We want to find redemption. That's the business God's in. But it's not our job to judge because none of us can pretend we're perfect. As you hear me say often, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. It's not our job to judge, but it is our responsibility to hold one another accountable and even, if necessary, to confront in love. Now, as I said, it's not a pleasant task, but it's necessary. It's necessary for the good of one another, it's necessary for the good of the relationship, but it's also necessary for the good of the church. Let me close with a true story and a scripture. Years ago, about 10 years ago, I could look it up, have notes on it, I was counseling a couple, she was a member of this church, who wanted to be married in this church and wanted me to officiate the wedding. Well, when it came time for the sex talk within the confines of marriage and premarital counseling, I found out that they were sleeping together. And so I had asked them, as I have with many couples over the years, to abstain from premarital sex until after they were married. And so they left that night out of my office and we had another appointment in a few days. that came back and they responded in our next meeting that they prayed about it and they felt that what they were doing was okay with God and they were okay with it. And they decided they didn't want to get married at this church or have me officiate the wedding anymore. And they left the church. I've seen this play out more than once too. I talked to the board about it because this was she was a member of the church And it was determined that myself and a board member would then meet with them and show them from scripture that sexual immorality is sin is wrong but we never got to that point because as i said they left the church i literally i remember going back to that time i literally wept over them and over their decision my heart was broken inside it was not an easy thing to do but they decided to continue in their sin well fast forward four or five years this is about four or five years ago and Jill and I were in Winco grocery store up on Hampton Power and I heard Pastor Brian Pastor Brian can I talk to you I turned around we turned around because no one really calls my name in Winco and I saw this lady there and she started to open up she goes I am so sorry for what I put you through I was wrong You were right. And since that time, I've repented. We're married yet. Everything's going good. We're attending church. We're, you know, the, the sins forgiven, whatever. But in all my years of pastoral ministry, this was the first and only time that that has ever happened. I'm glad that she came to her biblical senses and saw things from God's point of view and not her own. And so you say, well, does the process of Matthew 18 ever work? Yeah, it does sometimes. In fact, let's jump ahead to Paul's next letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians, if you want to turn there to chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, reading from the New Living Translation. Verse 3, Paul says, this is why... I wrote to you as I did, so that when I do come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me the greatest joy. Surely you all know that my joy comes from your being joyful. I wrote that letter in great anguish, with a troubled heart and many tears. I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. In verse 5, I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than me. Verse 6, most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. In other words, the punishment was sufficient. Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be so overcome with discouragement, and so I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. And the question I asked after reading that is, could Paul be talking about the same man we're talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Most scholars would say yes. I mean, wouldn't it be great to know that the church in Corinth properly intervened, and this man was able to extricate himself from an unspeakable, sinful lifestyle and then was ultimately fully restored to a right relationship with God and back in fellowship with God's church. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? Also note that forgiveness and love, that forgiveness and love were not given unconditionally to the offender. In other words, sin wasn't taken lightly and the fear of God was present. And so Paul dealt with it. Now, whether the man in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 was the same man as in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we don't know. But we do know from 2 Corinthians 2 that restoration happens. And when it does, church, it's our job to close the door in the past. Let bygones be bygones, offer forgiveness, offer comfort, reaffirm our love for them, and to help the individual move on with their lives. Something hard, but necessary. Once again, this very rarely happens in the Western church today, and it needs to happen a lot more, because judgment does begin with the house of God. Now, let me wind this up. Creating distance between yourself and someone you love is never pleasant and it's never easy. But sometimes it is necessary for the good of all involved. Sometimes separating yourself from someone's behavior is honestly the best thing for them. And it's the best thing for you and the best thing for all of us see, the goal is not to establish ourselves as better than anyone else, God forbid. It's not to justify our condemnation of anyone else. The goal is that we might as individuals and that we as a church would become more holy and more pure and more like Jesus Christ in every way. That means at times you do create that distance, if need be. That means at times you do turn over to Satan at times saying, okay, God, this person's in your hands now. And God, may the end result be restoration. And maybe you're praying that for your family. We have family members, all of us. And and let me just say it this way. Um, I'm just going to say something, but I'm going to move on. Uh, At this time, we're going to stop the recording.